2: This
0: is the Tom Hartman Program.
3: You know, as we look at the police murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others, we find that, you know, obviously there is a a problem intrinsic to the way we police in America. We we had a long conversation about this last week, how uh, European policing is the whole concept of policing is very different than the American concept of policing. Our form of policing largely grew out of the slave patrols in the South. Uh, Many communities in the United States right up until the late 1800s had no police departments at all and uh, or, or a very small a de (laughs) minimis police presence. Uh, But there is, There have been a couple of things recently that have made this situation far worse. I mentioned the 1033 program that came along with Reagan, um, the uh, uh, the Reagan-Bush administration, really. It was started in 1980 by George Herbert Walker Bush, but uh, it was originally, it was first proposed in the 1980s during Reagan. But I think perhaps more destructive is this concept of qualified immunity. Back in 1967, in the United States, you could, by and large, it didn't happen that often, but you could sue, and, and, and by and large, people of color were, were excluded from having the ability to do this just because of the simple racism built into the entire system, but you could sue police if they mistreated you. You could sue police departments, you could sue cities, you could sue individual police officers, and... Uh, this started to change in 1967. In 1967, there was a, poli- there was a uh, Supreme Court case. Well, what happened was uh, there was an African-American man who was in a bus station in uh, Mississippi, in Jackson, Mississippi, and there was a whites area to the bus station and he sat down in the whites area. Now, two years earlier, of course, you know, the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act had been passed. Uh, whites only areas were illegal. And in fact, in 1965, in late 1965, the Supreme Court had, had, you know, put their stamp of approval on that and said that it was no longer a crime for black people to be in, quote, whites-only areas. But nonetheless, these two Jackson, Mississippi police, two years later, 1967, arrested this black man for sitting in the whites-only area. Um, he sued and took it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court concluded that because these officers in good faith did not know that two years earlier the Supreme Court had ruled that that was no longer something that they could enforce, that he could not pursue his uh, his, his claim for justice against these police officers. So that began that there was a qualified immunity based at that point based on the idea that they were operating in good faith. It was called good faith immunity. That went on steroids in 1982 when um, a conservative majority on the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in a, in a case called Harlow v. Fitzgerald that, and this, by the way, this had to do with people who worked in the Nixon administration. It, it was not, the word police does not exist anywhere in this ruling. I read it yesterday. I spent 2 hours reading the Supreme Court ruling and the dissent. And, you know, and everything, right? And the background of the case. It was it was all about whether a citizen could sue people in the Nixon administration for some of the crimes that Nixon committed basically. Against, you know, that that echoed down to those individual people. And the the conclusion that the Supreme Court came to was that People in the executive branch, and they they extended this, by the way, at the time to the legislative and, and, and judicial branches, basically people working in government have what the Supreme Court referred to as qualified immunity, which means that if they are doing their job, and they're doing their job without intentional malice, and in the course of doing their job, they cause harm to somebody, that somebody can no longer sue the police because the police are immune. Well, actually could no longer sue, sue the president, could no longer sue John Ehrlichman, who worked for the president, could no longer sue the Supreme Court, could no longer sue members of Congress, whatever. Now, there's actually a history to this, but, you know, it's, it's way wonky and not necessary, but that, that 8, 1982 decision, within a year, the Supreme Court and, and a number of lower courts had decided that that qualified immunity that they had granted to these government employees of these, you know, at the highest levels of these three branches of government also applied to police officers all across the United States, whether, whether they were federal police, you know, the FBI, the DEA, the ATF, whether they were state police or whether they were local, you know, sheriffs, county, county sheriffs or, or municipal police, that right across the board, basically you couldn't sue them unless you met this insanely high standard of proof. And that's why cop after cop after cop who have killed people have gotten off. And there, interestingly, there is a movement on the right to do away with qualified immunity for police, specifically for police. And there's also a movement on the left to do away with qualified immunity for police. And this is a good thing. I'm doing away with this movement. Julian Castro has, Castro has, uh, uh, is going to be introducing legislation this week in the US House of Representatives to end qualified immunity I believe there's a couple of senators who are talking about introducing legislation. The Supreme Court has right now 10 cases in front of them. They haven't chosen if they're going to pick one of them, multiple ones, or none of them. But it's expected, widely expected among court watchers, that they will make that decision this week. They have 10 cases challenging qualified immunity for police officers, giving them an op- Opportunity to essentially amend or partially reverse their own 1982 decision. Keep in mind, Congress never made these rules. So it may well be that one of the outcomes of this uh, spasm of, of, spasm is the wrong word, this, this outpouring of outrage over the murder of George Floyd and police brutality in general and right across the board, will be actual reform. Now, the police are not the only people who have qualified immunity. In uh, the 1990s, in 1996, a piece of legislation was passed that gave qualified immunity to internet companies. And this is why white supremacist cops who are planning, and, and for that matter, white, white supremacists in general, who are planning violence against people of color, have all these, you know, hundreds apparently, maybe thousands of private Facebook groups where they sit around and plan what they're doing. And the reason why you can't sue Facebook for this is is called Section 230 of the the Decency Act, uh, which is uh, an amendment to the Telecommunications Act of 1934. Uh, that says that basically, you know, the platform isn't, isn't responsible. Now, prior to 1996, that immunity did not exist. And back in the early 1980s, for about 15 years, myself, Nigel Peacock, Sue Nethercote, uh, you know, we ran forums on CompuServe. Uh, we had almost 30 of them. Uh, the tech support forums for desktop publishing, IBM PCs, Macintoshes, a forum on the JFK assassination, a forum on ADHD, a forum on UFOs. And CompuCert paid us really well for this. We We made a good living. And frankly, if we were to do away with Section 230, which oddly enough, Trump is talking about doing because he's pissed off at Twitter. If we were to do away with Section 230, Mark Zuckerberg, instead of being worth $77 billion, might end up only worth $70 billion. Because he'd have to start hiring people to do what we did for CompuServe back in the 80s and early 90s, which is keeping the message boards clean. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So, frankly, in my opinion, we need to end qualified immunity for the police and we need to end qualified immunity for Facebook. We'll be back. So we have a new video up, it's over at TomHartman.com, talking about language, how we use language. Language matters tremendously. And we have chosen as a society, as a culture, as media, as political leadership, et cetera, not to refer to people like Steve Mnuchin, who threw thousands of people out of their homes illegally during the banking crisis, as looters, not to refer to uh, Rex Tillerson, whose oil company has ravaged much of the third world, literally destroying people's lives, killing people, poisoning people. Uh, We don't refer to them as looters. Uh, We don't refer to the police who go into neighborhoods and kill people, minorities, uh, particularly African Americans. We don't refer to them as looters, stealing their lives. But when black people rise up and say, no, enough, we call them looters. There's something wrong with this. Check it out. It's at TomHartman.com. suspect I'm mispronouncing your name. Elois Elois in Los Angeles,
1: Hi. you're on the air. Hi, yes, hello, Eloise Duncan is my name.
3: You know, Eloise. I was just
1: gonna- Thank you. Elois, yes. My family originally moved to Tulsa in 1915 from Louisiana and of course when the riots came, one of my cousin's houses was burnt down and I was told the U.S. military bombed the area. My aunt Carrie was born in 1903 and lived through this and in her nineties moved to San Diego. She died at 104. She was taken care of by another uh, one of her nephews, Roger Duncan, who's in his nineties now. And I've been talking to him and writing him by email to ask because I wanted to put something together regarding the Duncan family. And I was told that she was given a document acknowledging her ordeal in Tulsa at that time by the Bush administration. And now the Duncan's live all over the U S in, in California, New York, Michigan, Washington, DC, and the descendants are teachers and realtors and profess. And there's a professor now and doctors, lawyers, architects, and, and a couple of people who were airplane designers, I think that's what it's called and the rest of us regular folks. And this was of course, not without great effort after 1921. And I just wanted to say also that I was further asking my cousin information about what happened when he was trying to get a house. And he said that, that one of my uncles who is, was in real estate, was helping him back in, I guess, 1948 or after that. And Thurgood Marshall and Lauren Miller were the attorneys and they were busy helping him because he was having a housing problem because in Shelley versus Kramer, three, three, four us one, 1948 is the case, the United States Supreme court a case, which held that courts could not enforce racial covenants on real estate. I know that that continues because my uncle Mallory was the first to buy a house west of the red line on Crenshaw Boulevard. And he bought it in Windsor Hills, California, and they went through quite a lot of stuff because of course the people in the neighborhood were very unhappy. The homes there in, on Windsor Hill are worth millions of dollars now. And I also wanted to talk about one of my cousins whose name is Taylor. It was, he's a descendant of the Duncan's, but he was named Pete Taylor. And he fought in the battle of the bulge. I thought that all folks who fought in the Battle of the Bulge were white, but knowing people from Louisiana, many of them, and across the nation, you don't have to just be from Louisiana. You could be dark brown to white, and Pete was white skin, blonde hair, blue eyes, and I guess when they drafted him, they just put him where the whites were. And he ended up, it says here, from what he sent me, that uh, we know he commanded troops during the Battle of the Bulge. And he says that he was awarded medals for his work. And then he had a sister Marine who looked just like he did. And she drove around was the chauffeur for commanders, except that she let them know over and over again that she was in those days colored, not white. And they told her if she just shut up and say that she was white, they could get her a better job. And she refused to do
3: it. amazing. amazing these stories are so rich and so meaningful. Thank you so much for calling and, and sharing yours with us. I, I, okay. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Judd in Tyler, Texas. Hey Judd, what's on your mind today?
2: Hey Tom, first off, I'm 59 years old. I didn't know about Black Wall Street until two years ago. And that's, mm-hmm. that's really unfortunate. And it's, it's, uh, you know, it's something it's, it's a horrible part of, uh, history, but it, it, it needs to be taught. It absolutely does. Um, the reason I called, I wanted to uh, tell you that I saw a, a couple of parallels between this the shooting in Kentucky and one that happened a little over a year ago in Houston. And in both instances, uh, police entry on a no-knock and uh, no-announce into uh, a person's residence. And
3: both. Uh, so both- this is like what happened to Breonna Taylor, in other words.
2: Yeah. In uh, and, and the same instance, in, uh, in Houston, two people were listed as drug dealers, which they weren't, but it was just bad information. They entered the house, and uh, a gunfight ensued. And, you know, especially in this state, when you have a very liberal castle doctrine law, you know, somebody's got a gun right beside their bed. You don't know who's coming in your house, and, and you're dead.
3: Yeah, I Absolutely. think that we need to end the whole no-knock warrant thing. I, in, in my opinion, it's a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. But beyond that, it puts police at risk as well as, you know, obviously, you know, people who are in those houses. And I just think it's wrong. You know, yes, with a, if you have to knock and say police, somebody might flush the drugs down the toilet or something. So what? We're talking about people's lives here. And we're talking about, the, you know, the, basically the quality of life. Sarah in uh, Tarzana, California. Hey Sarah, what's on your mind?
4: Couple things. Um, One thing I want to talk about is that not every policeman is a a gun-toting hondo out there. I have a family member who is in a police force where they actually teach and require community policing. And I don't want to... Yeah, and and
3: that's and that's marvelous, Sarah, and there is there's more and more of that happening around the country. And in fact, one of the high points for me of this weekend was uh, watching my Twitter feed and having people post picture after not picture, video after video after video of police officers taking a knee or p- police officer. You know, there's one police officer. Uh, I believe he was a commander saying, you know, I'm with you guys. I'm going to march with you. We, you know, we've got. You know, it's kind of an old trope. Oh, there's some good cops, and frankly, any police department that has even one bad cop in it, the entire police department is complicit, in my opinion. But there are some good police departments. Forgive the interruption, Sarah.
4: Yeah, well, that seemed very, very important. And being in Los Angeles, I was watching the results of all the senseless rioting out there, and people just going totally crazy, burning down like one poor guy in the Fairfax area. His whole business, seventy-five years' life work, was a shambles. And yeah. you know, it's it's like two sides of things. And my father, God rest him, used to tell me the minute that you start saying all about any group of people, you're being a bigot because you know, even people with identical uh genes like uh Mark and uh Scott Kelly, one of them's now taller than the other and they're identical twins. So uh mm-hmm. something about being in space elongating them or something but uh... Yeah. it just worries me to look around and just see all of the devastation and you know directed at people who the devastation know, is the devastation of the... property
3: sarah to call to yeah. call this senseless is to minimize it there are yeah. people whose lives have been lost tens of thousands of people in the last century whose lives have been lost at the hands of police and. And and people are saying enough. A black person is three and a half times more likely to be killed by a cop than a white person. An unarmed black person is three times more likely to be killed by police than a white person with no with no weapon. And if they're fleeing the scene, a black person is You're six times more likely. To Tom to be killed. Hartman visit Tom Hartman for audio and video archives. I mean, these are simple realities. Tom Hartman here. Did you know that the Second Amendment was written to protect the slave patrols in South Carolina and Georgia back in the day? It's in my new book, The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. Check it out. Thanks so much. John in Portland, Oregon. Hey, John, thanks for listening to X-Ray FM.
5: What's up? Hey, Tom, I'm glad to hear you're doing well, and I'm glad to hear that America is finally waking up. I just kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about a proposed way of holding police accountable, two ways, actually. A lot of times when these police involve shootings of unarmed black people who are on the ground being choked to death, after the victim has sort of I don't want to say been forgotten but sort of been rolled into the list of other victims like Mm -hmm. michael brown trayvon martin eric gardner breonna taylor we could say their names and we should but there's another list of names that people don't say and i think we should say and remember and that's the list of the people who actually killed these people like philip railsford or darren wilson or derek chauvin or geronimo yanez and in many of these instances, these are people who, just as your last caller said, you cannot, anytime you categorize an entire class of people in one way, you're, you're being a bigot. And that's correct. But we can absolutely ascertain an individual's values and value to society, frankly, by their actions. And when we have murderers in police uniforms who are still in police uniforms after the families of the victims have accepted massive cash settlements that are usually paid for out of the city tax money which is insult to injury we cannot like cash settlements combined with qualified immunity immunity it negates the possibility for any kind of retributive justice both to the victim and to the society because what that means is that you cannot hold that individual responsible for their actions and that as a society has to then add salt onto the wound in the form of money pouring out. And we should be fixing potholes and building libraries. Instead, yeah. we're. we're well, it, John,
3: diff- two thoughts on this. Number one, you can track a lot of this back to 1982 in that Supreme Court decision. And I will be surprised if by a year from now, uh, that has not changed significantly, okay. either by action I- of the Supreme Court or by action of Congress. You know, I doubt it'll happen by action of Congress during the Trump administration, but, you know, wait until right. after the election. And secondly, there is a debate within news circles about whether to name cops, killer cops, for the same reason that you don't want to name, you know, mass shooters. Now, the logic is somewhat different in terms of their motivation.
5: Now the mass shooters get locked up and I don't know Well if- and
3: not only that the mass shooters are doing the mass shootings because they want their name in the paper. I don't think the killer cops are killing people because they want their name in the paper. I think they're they, I think they're they're frankly murderers. They're psychopaths. They're enjoying killing other people and they're hoping that their names will never be in the papers.
5: So exactly. I, you know which, they, they which hope- actually makes a stronger case for your case. Exactly. They hope their names will never be in the papers. And Tom the way that it works is that if there's a murderer loose in our society, civilians become police officers. Civilians procure training, procure arms and each other. They go out and they hunt that person down. We should do the same for killer cops. Civilians should arm themselves, train themselves, go find their addresses, hunt them down, arrest them.
3: Turn them- no, 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 no. no. <laughs> you're, not, you're not going to arm yourself and go hunt down anybody. Down. Uh, that, that's just, I mean, you just... He just blew up a totally rational argument, uh, sadly. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan by Farwell and Ames. I'm reading from Chapter 4, titled An Army of One. Two years after the incident at Cape May, Bo's failure still ate at him. He never told his parents what had happened. The day they shipped me out, a thought occurred to me, and it stayed in my mind whenever I thought about the Coast Guard, he told General Dahl, and that was that I wanted to fix that. Those who knew him knew Beau was struggling with something. He would never say what it was, but the tension was plain. He spent more and more time in his room at Anna's. There was no bed, no couch, no TV, but on his days off from work, he stayed there sometimes for days at a time. Fontaine and her other new roommate heard him yelling at himself, I can't believe you did that. That was so stupid. Some of his friends worried, but Beau never complained, and around men in particular, he carried himself with stoic severity. Women saw a more concerning aspect. In the Harrison's kitchen, one of Kim's friends grabbed his hand, flipped his forearm over to reveal the neat rows of cuts. You have such nice arms, she said. What the heck are you doing to yourself? I'm getting ready, he told her. What are you getting ready for? Pain. Beau, what on earth are you talking about? I'm just getting ready. Enough time had passed where I got uncomfortable again with not doing something that was making a difference, he told Dahl years later. His parents put him in touch with their pastor from Boise, Phil Proctor, who was ministering with seminary students in northeastern Uganda. Bo told his parents it sounded interesting. He could go to East Africa and teach villagers self-defense techniques. But the timing didn't work out. All the seminary spots were taken. That spring, Bo's seeking came full circle. He remembered meeting another Coast Guard washout, who told him that if he wanted to, he could re-enlist. The Army was stressed for new warm bodies. His family knew he'd been thinking about it. Whatever you do, don't join the Army, his sister and Albrecht told him. It was a bit of the old Army-Navy rivalry coming through, but Skye also believed that the Navy took care of its own in a way that the Army never had. His mother agreed, but didn't think Bo would actually enlist. Days later, when she saw him on the highway driving back from Twin Falls in his motorcycle, she knew that he had. At the Army recruiting station, Bo was a young man in a hurry. He told the recruiter that he wanted to become a scout, a soldier who takes risky missions to track down enemy positions. The recruiter told him there were no more slots available for scouts, but that he had three openings in the infantry, which would fill up fast if Bergdahl didn't act quick. He offered him a $5,000 signing bonus to sweeten the deal. In the spring of 2008, the Army had lowered its recruiting standards to levels not seen since the end of the draft. Five years earlier, at the start of the Iraq War, 94% of new recruits had high school diplomas. By 2005, that number had dropped to 71%. New soldiers, with what the Army defined as Category 4 intelligence, those who scored in the 30th percentile or below, were accepted. As Iraq burned, their numbers rose, rising from just 6 one-hundredths of a percent of new recruits and up to 4%. Convicted felons could secure a waiver from a sympathetic officer, and they were accepted, too. Physical fitness standards dropped. Recruiters fudged paperwork and coached problem cases like Bergdahl through background checks. His Coast Guard diagnosis was no longer disqualifying. He simply signed a form prepared by his recruiter stating that he had overcome his earlier issues. Bergdahl's waiver was approved in late May 2008, and he was issued orders to Fort Benning, Georgia, for Infantry One Station Unit training where civilians were turned into infantrymen. His parents didn't take the news as badly as Bo had feared. Janie was relieved that he would no longer be traveling the world alone. Bob thought the structured life would do him good. Reading the news at the time, he also believed that the Taliban was on the run and the risk of serious combat was low. "He's barely going to get in on the war in Afghanistan," Bob recalled thinking at the time. "It's almost over." Kim and her brother took it much worse. Mark Ferris' heart sank at the news. The last they had talked, Bo was planning a two-week wilderness trip in the Yellowstone River in a sea kayak. It was a wild idea and would be a rough trip, but Ferris thought it could work. The Army would not work. If there was a human being unfit for the Army who should never have joined the Army, it was Bo, said Ferris. He was naive, idealistic, good-spirited, a very gentle person, and a gentle soul. Anna Fontaine was equally concerned. Why was this a better idea than the Coast Guard? You tried this before. It didn't work. Why are you putting yourself through this again? Bo told her he was older now and had matured. I was naive then, he said. I now know what to expect. Anna had grown up in the South near Army bases and told him he wouldn't like the rough culture. It didn't matter. He was dead set on it, she said. He was gung-ho. Her parting words to him were, keep your head down, don't be a hero. During two weeks of in-processing as an infantry trainee at the Army's 30th Adjutant General Reception Battalion, Bergdahl learned that the Army didn't care for his feelings, his opinions, or his time. He stood in one line after another for physical exams, for drawing equipment, and for having his head shaved. His free time was spent in an open bay starship barracks filled with bunk beds and his fellow recruits. 2nd Battalion, 58th Infantry, House of Pain, was one of six training battalions on Sand Hill, a section of Fort Benning Reserve for basic training. Each battalion was led by a lieutenant colonel. Within the battalions were six companies, each led by a captain and a first sergeant. There were four platoons in each company led by drill sergeants. And the book is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl, and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan by Farwell and Ames. Tom Hartman here with you. I'm sorry, say what, Sean? Oh, Victoria Jones. Thank you. Bless you. Uh, And online with us is Victoria Jones. Victoria Jones is uh, the chief Washington analyst with the DC Radio Company. Victoria Jones DC is her Twitter handle. And Victoria, I have noticed that. Well, actually, I, I saw in my Twitter feed this morning a massive demonstration in Christchurch, New Zealand. People marching down the street, you know, in outrage over the murder of George Floyd and in solidarity with Americans who are outraged over police violence in this country. Is this happening all over the world? What's going on?
7: Yeah yeah it really is happening all over the world i mean Christchurch really is as far away pretty much as you can get uh there are there are protests planned for tonight in australia they should actually be kicking off uh as far as western australia right about now everywhere they're really everywhere they have been happening already in melbourne prime minister scott morrison of australia has had to address the issue of aboriginal dying in police custody on conservative radio and has said some inflammatory things. Even in Syria's northwest Idlib province, which, as you know, has been hammered by the Syrian government to seize control from opposition forces, two artists painted a mural on the shell of a ruined building, said, I can't breathe and no to racism. So even in Syria, yeah, yeah, that's extraordinary. And uh, this is very interesting that uh, I I read in the New York Times. In Lebanon, a group has compiled a a document called From Beirut to Minneapolis, a protest guide to solidarity for protesters as a way to track state abuses. And Chile, an activist, is uh, cautioning demonstrators to protect their eyes from rubber bullets because they have been blinded by rubber bullets and so you know, th- this is very interesting uh, but also other governments are taking advantage of this politically as a way to exploit the situation so there's a couple of different things going on simultaneously
3: so you know i know that there are or i i, I heard a news report this morning on NPR that there are a couple of governments that are not shall we say friendly to the united states that have been all over the coverage um as a way of demonstrating how corrupt and evil the united states is you know sort of the way that we were looking at the umbrella protests in in hong kong as as a symptom of a corrupt state in china um is that what you're talking about when you said government's seeking to exploit this or or is there something else going on yeah and
7: i'm not using exploit in a pejorative uh, way just you know that you Mm. you see an opportunity and so you use it um, well, for example, China and the Hong Kong situation that's going on now, an American official on Saturday went after the ruling Communist Party on Twitter for cracking down in Hong Kong, and the Chinese spokesman cracked back on Twitter, can't breathe. That, that kind of thing is going on. Right.
3: Right. We've got our own Uyghurs here. It's uh, you know an oppressed minority. Do you think that the the international outrage is? I know Australia has a. I've been and worked in Australia, and I've worked in Aboriginal community up in the Lockhart River up in, in uh, near Cairns mm. in that school system. In fact, and you know the Aboriginal history in that country is horrible. horrible, and you know what what whites have done to Aboriginals. Do you think that is most of this? Countries with local minority communities who are rebelling against who share a grievance, basically, with the black community in the United States against the, the white power structure? Or are these countries that are saying this is just another symptom of how bizarre and and violent America has become, particularly since the Reagan revolution and the hyper-militarization of our police here?
7: I think both things are going on. I mean, for example, in Paris, there have been protests. A young minority man there, uh, who died, there has been... Uh, campaign about his death for about four or five years now, waged by his sister, and so that was highlighted again, um, and in in other countries. So where you have immigrant populations who have not necessarily been treated well by the police, you're seeing you're definitely seeing this. No question about it. Yeah, yeah.
3: Right, right. So yeah, that's going uh, on. Yes, but
7: one quick thing about the Australian situation, which is really very big over there, Um, the relatives of David Dungay, who was he was an Aboriginal man, he said, I can't breathe 12 times before he died while being restrained by prison guards in twenty fifteen. Uh they say they've been traumatized by footage of Mr. Floyd's death and they want another investigation into Mr. Dungay's death now. So this this is really resonating.
3: Remarkable, remarkable. The world awakens. Victoria Jones, Chief Washington analyst of the DC radio company, Victoria Jones DC is her Twitter handle. Victoria, thanks for dropping by. It's always nice talking to you. Thank you. We'll be back You know, with more of our program, we're going to be talking with Imam Khalid Latif, the uh, former uh, pastor for the New York Police Department.
0: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
5: Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts.
3: So in our latest video over at TomHartman.com, you'll find a riff about a fellow named Errol Graham. He's a 57-year-old African-English individual who starved to death recently in the United Kingdom. The neoliberal Thatcher policies are apparently echoing through the British system now in a rather substantial way, the same way that Reaganomics is echoing through the American system. And we've got tens of thousands of Americans who die every year because they lack health care or they can't afford copays and things, and we have literally millions of children in America who are malnourished or even go to bed hungry every night. It's pretty breathtaking stuff, and I think you'll find the rant particularly interesting or useful and hope you can share it with your friends so when you pick it up. It's over at TomHartman.com. Thanks again. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is the uh, university chaplain for New York University, the senior fellow and co-founder of the many institute of multi-faith leadership and an adjunct assistant professor at nyu wagner uh, executive director of the islamic center at new york university and the youngest chaplain in the history of the new york city police department at the age of twenty four imam khalid latif imam latif welcome to the program and thank you for joining us today
8: well thank you for having me
3: i'm so glad you could join us so I caught this uh, extraordinary prayer you laid on Jake Tapper and all of the rest of us on uh, CNN a while ago. And you were talking in your conversation and also in your prayer, you were talking about the intersection essentially that you saw between the way that COVID-19 is disproportionately killing people of color, particularly African-Americans, and our crisis of policing and our crisis of culture in general and uh, the fact that while you know Donald Trump went out of his way to, uh, to illegally send billions of dollars' worth of weapons to Saudi Arabia so they could bomb civilians in, in Yemen, he was unwilling to buy PPE and, and you know things like that for our first responders. You pulled it all together as a single thread. And I, I would love you to speak to that, please.
8: Well, just as a quick point of clarification, I actually am a former chaplain for the NYPD. I haven't been in the position for a couple of years. But, you know, in in understanding, especially with myself living in New York City, which was the epicenter of the coronavirus, there's a lot of room to pay attention to revelations of, of different kinds. And I think in moments like this where it can create a lot of heaviness and difficulty, Uh, But can also create a lot of distance from individuals where we are not as interconnected and interdependent as we need to be. Um, We fail to realize that what we deal with at times is just symptomatic of more deeply entrenched challenges and issues that um, will continue to come to surface unless we really deal with them head on. And you see that from the coronavirus and the impact that it's had, Um, That yet again, it's very clear that elements of race and class um, dictate who has and who has not. Uh, And the systems that our country is built upon and are functioning off of even till today seek to cater to just a uh, privileged majority demographic uh, and quite often function at the expense of minorities of all backgrounds and in particular black people of color
3: so you were uh, uh, the the minister for the, or the the chaplain for the police department in new york city and yet you're a minority do you have a fear of the police stopping you and your family and and what was your experience of working with the new york city police department what lessons for today might have come out of that
8: yeah i, I think People look at what is most apparent and they don't look at what exists at a deeper level. And the conversations that we have are not just about good cops and bad cops, because there's definitely a lot of good cops. And as we've seen uh, with the unfortunate realities of George Floyd and so many else, there's also a lot of cops who are terrible cops and have an absence of ethics and morals. Um, but whether you're a good cop or a bad cop, Uh, If the system overall is something that is bad, um, then a good cop or a bad cop in a bad system is still going to yield inequitous results at the end of the day. And we find um, across the board that there's a lot of challenges and a lot of difficulties. The fundamental basis of many of these systems, when they were built, were built at a time where they sought to cater to a privileged demographic. Uh, and the experience of individuals who come from, you know, the white, Protestant, heterosexual male background are as such that these were systems that sought to create unique experience, inclusive of law enforcement apparatus that was built and exists now at every level that you can engage in, city, state, and federal, that seeks to still protect the best interests of a majority-privileged class, where you find law enforcement, for example, engaged in the enforcement of law, more often than not, it tends to be enforced upon individuals that come from lower social classes, people of color, minorities, immigrants, those who do not have that much power in their favor or at their disposal. Uh, And when you see also, consequently, where law enforcement tends to utilize, Practice that is outside of the scope of what is legal uh, it tends to infringe upon that same demographic that it more often than not enforces law upon people of color minorities individuals who more often than not are black and brown people who do not have that much power in their favor I mean I think the idea of addressing symptoms rather than what the actual ailments are are what render us to where we are today and we find ourselves dealing with the same realities over and over
3: so what specifically are the steps that you would suggest we take to reform policing in the united states i mean you've you've seen this up close and personal
8: i mean i think a step one is to think about more how you can engage in community policing and aspects of community involvement and in i think a true embrace of real allyship This is a conversation that needs to have a first step that engages black leadership, African-American leadership across the board to take cues from with an understanding of just listening.
3: Forgive my interrupting, but I remember these conversations in 92, I think it was, after Rodney King. Police departments having sensitivity training and bringing, bringing the black community in and talk. You know, I remember these conversations in 1968 after Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was murdered and American cities were on fire. I remember it well. How would this be different?
8: I think tokenization is a very real thing, and when you're able to create narratives that still has its fundamental base of a construct rooted in fear that synergizes relationships between government, media apparatus, and what a mass population perceives of a minority experience to be, the meetings that would take place at moments such as what you are referring to are not necessarily done to engage, but to create a kind of facade of engagement and where right. you move beyond to PR stunts in other it's words. the first recognizing it. Yeah, because it doesn't take a lot to necessarily appease a demographic. In the 90s, you're also at a very different point in time because uh, you don't have technology, you don't have social media, you don't have a voice of, you know, a people that can speak their own reality and their own truth. as you see so many coming to And what it does is take away now the deniability from so many. Um, that these are things that exist on a systemic and structural level, and I think where you see people who are outraged from a minority standpoint, uh, you see the opportunity for those who come from a majority and privilege.
3: Thank you so much for being with us today. It's uh, it's been great speaking with you. The website, by the way, is icnyu.org. Klatif is is uh, his Twitter handle. Imam Kulatif, Thank you. Thank you. Great talking to you. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Medea Benjamin's new book, Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. And this is from the introduction. Through the women-led peace organization Code Pink, which I co-founded with Jody Evans after the 9-11 attacks, I have spent much of the last decade standing up against a U.S. military intervention in the Middle East, and supporting local democracy activists. I traveled many times to the region, listening to human rights activists, marching with them in the streets, dodging tear gas and bullets, and getting beaten up and deported by government thugs. I have seen firsthand the deadly effects of U.S. foreign policies. The 2003 U.S. invasion of Iraq destroyed the lives of millions, including many of my dear friends, and unleashed the sectarian hatred that later gave birth to the Islamic State. I recall a conversation with my Iraqi colleague, Yanar Mohammed, daughter of a Shiite father and a Sunni mother, and founder of the organization of Women's Freedom in Iraq. When I asked her what was the most notable legacy of the U.S. invasion of her country, she gave the chilling response, We, Sunnis and Shia, learned to hate each other. In another part of the Middle East, U.S. military support for Israel has wreaked havoc on the lives of Palestinians and aroused the ire of people throughout the region, Continuous U.S. military interventions drone warfare in Yemen to overthrowing Muammar Gaddafi in Libya to funneling an endless stream of weapons into the region have unleashed new levels of violence. But the United States is not the only nation whose massive footprint has been trampling on the lives of people in the Middle East. The other nation is Saudi Arabia, an oppressive monarchy that denies human rights to its own people and exports extremism around the world. It also happens to be the closest U.S. ally in the Arab world. During the 1980s and 1990s, I met intolerant and violent young men in Pakistan and Afghanistan who were trained to hate Westerners in Saudi schools. In 2001, I saw my own nation convulsed by an attack on September 11th that was perpetrated mostly by Saudis. not hard to connect the dots behind the spread of the Saudi intolerant ideology of Wahhabism, the creation of al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, and the attacks in New York, Paris, Brussels, and San Bernardino. You can also connect the dots between Saudi Arabia and the failure of some of the historic uprisings associated with the Arab Spring, since the Saudi monarchy did not want calls for democracy to threaten its own grip on power. I was in Bahrain after Saudi tanks crushed the inspiring grassroots encampment in Pearl Square, where tens of thousands had gathered day after day to demand democracy. I will never forget the excitement of being in Tahrir Square during the Egyptian Revolution and watching a gasp uh, as a military coup backed by the Saudis put some 40,000 activists behind bars. In Yemen, the Saudis took a direct military role in that nation's internal conflict with a ruthless bombing campaign. When I travel overseas, people, people often ask me why Saudi Arabia, a country that is so repressive internally and overseas is such a close ally to the United States. Iranian friends want to know why the U.S. government is so outspoken about human rights violations in Iran, but silent about the worst abuses in the Saudi Kingdom. Yemenis ask why my government supplies weapons to the very nation, Saudi Arabia, that bombed their schools and hospitals. Saudi women ask why the United States, which professes great democratic values, props up a regime that treats women as second-class citizens. The easy answer is oil, weapon sales, and other business interests. Oil has formed the basis for U.S.-Saudi ties. The Kingdom has become the largest purchaser of American weapons in the world, and hundreds of billions of Saudi petrodollars help shore up the U.S. economy. But there's another reason, perhaps more critical than any of the others. The American people have not demanded an end to this dysfunctional, toxic relationship. Why? In part because the American people know so little about it. Even American parts of a peace movement know virtually nothing about the kingdom. The Saudi press is muzzled, foreign journalists are strictly monitored, and only tourists visiting for religious purposes are allowed into the country. Add to that a Saudi lobby that lines the pockets of U.S. think tanks, such as the Middle East Institute, Ivy League universities such as Harvard and Yale, and influential institutions from the Clinton Foundation to the Carter Center. This checkbook diplomacy helps put a happy face on the abusive monarchy and silences its critics. We have a lot to uncover. This book is meant to be a primer, giving readers a basic understanding of how the kingdom holds on to power internally and tries to influence the outside world. It looks at the founding of the Saudi state, the treatment of dissidents, religious minorities, women and migrant workers, the spread of Wahhabism, the kingdom's relationship with the West and its role in the region, and what the future might hold. As we delve into the inner workings of this dystopian regime, don't mistake criticism of Saudi Arabia for Islamophobia. This book is not a critique of Islam, but a critique of three intertwining factors that have shaped the Saudi nation. The extremist interpretation of Sunni Islam, known as Wahhabism, the appropriation of the Saudi state by one family, and Western support for this dynasty. Criticizing Saudi Arabia should not be equated with support for Saudi's nemesis, uh, Iran, Iranian government is guilty of some of the same abuses as the Saudis. Kingdom of the unjust. Welcome back, David, in Spotswood, New Jersey. Hey, David, what's on your mind today?
6: Hey, um, back in 2012, I I got I received a um, credential, a certified fraud exam designation. And I wanted to um, get what was called a QTAM reward. So I looked at the biggest budgets of of my local state government, and it was the police budgets. They were over 50%. So I started, I'll I'll make this story short now. I I did an investigation and came up with some preliminary numbers, and I went and spoke and had a couple beers and a couple of coffees with the local police in these precincts. And I pointed out to them that there was uh, turnover there, their um, the budgets had grown, and their pay had stayed flat, which he agreed with and begrudged. And what I got was is that everything you said is correct. You know they're angry and and you know they might even be sadistic, but their main the main what ticks them off and I think it's what's ticking them off in these riots. I, I don't know about about Mr. J- uh, George Floyd, but um, and the what's going on with the police is that. When he saw the CNN reporter, he saw a minority that makes more money than them. And then the other sadistic emotions came about.
3: Yeah, I think they saw a minority period, but I I get what you're saying, David. Um, And it's really interesting that uh, Omar Jimenez, I believe is his name, a black man was was arrested by the police, a CNN reporter um, on live TV, while two blocks away, a white CNN reporter was being treated very respectfully by the police and uh, that should tell us a whole awful lot. Uh, Nick in Chicago, hey Nick, what's on your mind?
0: Hey Tom, thank you for
8: taking my call.
3: I think along with your qualified immunity
0: suggestion, I think this is something else we need to look after or look into if we want to really end the police violence. And here's here's my elaboration to this. Anytime that we've had an officer do something like this no one's ever talked about who's protecting these guys i think a lot of people just assume it's just probably a a lawyer from somewhere or the da is in on it but no one's brought it up ever since then and the only reason i say that is because i think they're working really quietly i live in chicago and it it really it really bothered me why no one was talking about it until Mayor Lightfoot came out one day talking about police reform. The next day, the local FOP was screaming bloody murder about it, and then it hit me. This is why no one's talking about the unions, because whatever it is they're doing, I don't know exactly what it is that they're doing, and and I would leave that to an investigative journalist to really find that out, and I think you're going to find something that happened along with the Catholic Church. Now pedophile priests and uh racist cops are two different things i get that but i would contend that you have that same layer of protection along with the qualified immunity protecting these
4: cops
3: yeah i get it and what we need and nick Mm -hmm. we, we need police and we need policing and thank you for the call and nobody is suggesting we should do away with police and i certainly don't want to be putting a target on the back of police Frankly, I think that cops like uh, the fellow who murdered George Floyd are—he's the one. They are the ones who are provoking. You know, if anybody is going to be moving against police officers, they're the ones who are provoking that, not someone who's who's saying, you know, it's time for us to turn policing into a profession. I've told the story many times. I lived in Europe for a year. I had several interactions with the police while I was there. They are extraordinarily professional. They are very well paid. You have to have a college degree to be a police officer in Germany. And what do you study? You study the law. And I'm a graduate of the Georgia Police Academy. <laughs> I, You know, I, for two years, I was a licensed private detective. I didn't practice it. But I, I was writing books about it. But, you know, I've been there. I've seen that. I, I know a lot of cops. I have friends who are cops. Uh, one of my best friends was, you know, a small-town sheriff in Georgia. And I can tell you, it is not... It, you know nobody's trying to tear down and burn down the police departments here but we have a problem with policing in this country and it's one that goes way back peter in chicago it says here you want to disagree with me we got a minute to the end of the show what's on your mind
4: okay well tom
6: that's the first time i've heard you talk positively about cops last week you were all over them, saying how bad they are and we got to change No it's the not, whole not the first system. time peter come on give the me the majority a of police do a great job and let me ask you this. Who Tony
3: Kimpa is? I'm sorry, Peter, your phone is breaking up. I didn't understand
4: your last Do you know who Tony Kimpa is? No, I do not. He's a
6: man who was killed by Dallas police the exact same way George Floyd Floyd was in 2016. And the only difference is, is he was white, so no one really cared, no one said anything. The fact that George was killed is an outrage, and those cops will pay the price. Justice takes time. For all the liberals out there on TV talking about, oh, we need this, we need that now, you're not going to get it. So you need all of you guys need to pull back the rhetoric to calm this down, or the military is going to have to go in and start taking. Uh, (laughs) No, yeah. And
3: if the military goes in, then you are going to have a problem. You're going to have a real serious problem. Peter, thank you for the call. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. This country doesn't function if its people don't participate. So please, get out there, share share the good word with people, as it were, and participate in your democracy. Tag your it. We'll see you tomorrow. Be good to yourself and people around you. It's a tough time for everybody right now. We'll see you tomorrow.
0: You've been listening to Tom Hartman.